0: You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, stream our show at nprnews.org backslash listen, live every weekday at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show.
1: You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... Hi, John. It's Kennedy.
0: Solemnly swear you solemnly It's sunny on JFK's inauguration day, but so cold you can see Richard Nixon's breath as he steps forward to congratulate the new president. On Ronald Reagan's 84 inaugural, they did something they almost never do. They broke down and moved the whole thing inside because it was so cold. Maya Angelou had seen an inaugural or two in her day, and she knew to prepare for the cold. She chose a long coat in military blue with a stand-up collar and gleaming brass buttons.
2: I remember, in particular, her bearing and her coat, Uh and that it was, um, it was a formal occasion that she honored with her physical presence and, uh, with her, you know, she wasn't in a gown. I mean, of course, it was outside and it was winter, um, but something about her beautiful coat uh, felt so perfect for the occasion.
1: Please welcome Dr. Angelo.
2: I thought of her in that moment as uh, the preacher at the pulpit of America. She was a different kind of preacher uh, from what we might be used to but that that's what she was doing. She was ministering to the country from that place in her person at that moment.
0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is They Believed, what the words of America's firebrands, visionaries, and truth-tellers reveal about who we were then and who we are now. Bill Clinton was an admirer of President Kennedy's. Maybe you've seen that famous photo of an impressionable young Clinton in his teens meeting Kennedy in the Rose Garden. Kennedy had invited poet Robert Frost to speak at his inaugural. Clinton liked the historical resonance of that and the grace note of a poet capturing the idealism of the day. He knew Maya Angelou's work. They both had roots in Arkansas, so she got the call. And Elizabeth Alexander knows what that's like. And so you pick up the phone and it's somebody from Obama's inaugural team. And is it just a, we'd like to ask you to write a poem and declaim it on, you know, January, whatever it is, 17th? I mean, is it that simple? How did they do this?
2: Um, It was, um, you know, President Obama or President-elect Obama would like you to. So I mean, that's, that's how, um, that's how it, that's how it comes. There had been um, lots of speculation in poetry circles for weeks since he was uh, elected, because he was our literary president, he was our poetry reading president. Um, uh, And so the question of whether he would have uh, an inaugural poet was very, very much uh, in 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 the air, um, uh, and uh, so there it was. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't have a better story. With the, I have many good stories, but that that story is 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 not the juiciest one.
0: We'll get back to the story that is juicy from Alexander's own experience with presidential poem writing. But we left Maya Angelou with not much time to write something magnificent for Clinton's big day. The story goes that in the months before the Clinton inauguration, Maya Angelou was pacing around the house and her stocking feet at all hours <laughs> of the day and night. And she was reciting words and she was just... I guess free associating these words, listening for lyricism Mm -hmm. and rhythm. And I have a couple questions for you about that. Mm -hmm. Can you see that?
2: Can you see that in your mind's eye? I can totally see that in my mind's eye. One thing that I know, and I did not know Maya Angelou, but one thing that I, I, I have read and heard about her method is that she would sequester herself. Uh, when she had uh, important writing to do. And sometimes she would go uh, to a hotel and lock herself up and live with the words. uh, And sometimes it would happen in her home. But I think that that listening, that casting about, that making quiet so that you can hear, I think, not only the words that are if you will out there in the air for you to capture but also in her case i know that the words of many of the, the great poets uh, that she knew so well that she knew by heart that were a part of her fiber um that those words were there as well uh, as she was as she was writing the poem uh, and casting for the poem so i can absolutely see it and it's a wonderful image
0: You know, I really like that imagery though that you just, that you just mentioned about the words being out in the air and Maya Angelou grabbing for them in some ways and listening for how they fit together. How unusual of a process is that, do you think?
2: Well, I do think that that's what poets are always doing in some kind of way. It may not always um, be so theatrically rendered, um, but I think that what we're always doing is creating a silence so that we can hear something that is out there but has not yet been captured. Um, that I think that's always what the process is. So not like a poem in its entirety goes floating by and you take out your butterfly net and great, you've got it, but rather something in sounds, words, images. Uh, you're a tuning fork. You're a radio antenna. You're, you're listening for what is ambient, as well as, I think, going into your own body to pull out the sounds uh, that are part of your particular song.
0: Are you listening for how syllables mesh or how words sound when they are put next to each other? What are you you actually listening for?
2: Well, I think part of what the physicality of making a poem is, is that to the extent that a poem is song, uh, and if you think about, if anybody thinks about what it feels like to move from speech to song, you know, what does it mean? We use the phrase to raise your voice in song. What is that lifting up that takes spoken language to another level, that gives it a kind of a lyricism? And that lyricism can look or sound a lot of different ways. But what is it that raises it above the level of the ordinary, even if very everyday language is being used? What is that sense of shape, that sense of, uh, in the case of uh, of Angelo's poem, that that sense of rhythm and rhyme? Where does that come from? That's what you're looking for. What makes a poem a poem, and not just some words on a page. Um, a poem is, is a song, and you are trying to uh, that's the hard thing. you know, out of, out of thin air, you are making song.
0: This feels like a good moment to listen to an excerpt of the poem. If you're good mm-hmm. with that, let's let's listen.
1: I'd love to, yeah. But seek no haven. In my shadow, I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness, have lain too long face down in ignorance, your mouths spilling words armed for slaughter. The rock cries out to us today, you may stand upon me but do not hide your face. Across the wall of the world, a river sings a beautiful song. It says, come, rest here by my side.
0: I think I hear those elements that you that you were talking about in that part of the poem. What else do you hear?
2: It's so great to hear it and to and to hear it in her strong voice. It makes me think of uh something that she famously said on numerous occasions. She said If you have a song to sing, open your mouth and sing it. Who are you to possess song and not share it? And so I hear in that, you know, assured, powerful, um, beautifully plain voice and delivery uh the power of what it means to to share your song. Um, I think also um, some of the literary references in there that I really love that are, are, are quite layered is that um, uh, the references to, you know, not being able to hide your face in the rocks. And uh, here I, I'm i just going to find it and, and just read it out. I have the poem in front of me. But today the rock cries out to us clearly, forcefully. Come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. So there, uh, what she's um, uh, alluding to is, um, there's that biblical passage that says, uh, "Went uh, I went to the rocks to hide my face, to hide my face from God. And then the African-American Uh, uh, spiritual and sort of aphoristic tradition uh, translated that to went down to the rocks to hide my face. The rocks cried out, no hiding place. So I love that she's got uh, those two um, literary allusions in there telling us again that in this American song, in this American occasional text for this extraordinary, clearly historical moment, that she is pulling forward uh, a number of um, allusions, including uh, an allusion to uh, the African American vernacular tradition that is so very powerful. And that is one of the traditions uh, that is hers.
0: I think we should also, as we listen to more of the excerpts, um, talk about her bearing and her sense of authority. I, I was reading something that Louise Erdrich told the Washington Post about the poem. She said, her presence was so powerful and momentous. She made a statement that I was personally longing to see and hear. She. I, I'm trying to think about how to describe this. It is not... Um, it's a It's a presence and an authority that is open enough I think to give people an opportunity to rise to meet it. Do you know what I mean by that mm-hmm. it doesn't it's not a stifling, overwhelming authority. It's a very open kind of authority and presence. Does that make any sense?
2: yeah, as I think about her presence i um I think about a few things. First of all, she was a woman of the stage. Um, she was an actress, a dancer, um, uh, and had a wonderful sense of self-presentation and of, you know, some of the, um, the plays that she performed in, uh, in the 1960s, um, were, she really carried great language forward. And so to see herself, her body, her voice, as the vehicle for the words, as the carrier of the words, or, or the conduit, if you will, um, and that the performer's job is to bring the words to life. Um, uh, I, I think I see I see that training uh, in the way that she came, so that ultimately you do think of of her 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 body, her person, but also the words can you know sort of ride the air a little bit.
1: Lift up your heart. Each new hour holds new chances for new beginnings. Do not be wedded forever to fear, yoked eternally to brutishness. The horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here, on the pulse of this fine day, you may have the courage to look up and out and upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country, no less to Midas, than the mendicant, no less to you now than the Mastodon then. Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning.
0: Alexander says it's not just the words that the poet puts together, but how she decides where a line should break
2: and where a breath should be taken and where a word isn't needed. You know, you can break a line in a lot of different ways. You can break it in a way that is continuous, that keeps you flowing into the next line, or you can break it with a harder stop where there is clear breath, uh, clear silence that then puts the next line into a certain kind of relief. There are so many things you can do with that line break. But the line break is what makes a poem a poem. Um, That that is the most salient tool that you have uh, in order to to shape these words. You just said something interesting about
0: one line ahead might put the second line in some kind of relief and the break Mm -hmm. is important to that what do you mean by
2: that well if you literally imagine if you if you if you imagine visually that you are looking at a poem on the page and you're thinking about the white space right you know you have these words and then you come to the end of the line and there's white space and so that white space you can think of as air or breath or time right? Because that's what you're also trying to do when you make a poem. And to me, it's kind of the miraculous thing about ever being able to make even one, is that part of your job is to control time. You know, time is the stuff of a poem, and you are controlling it in a certain way. And so if you think about what that white space looks like, you also then, as you picture the poem on the page, if it's a poem that's in stanzas, let's say, there's another white space that comes in between the stanzas, and so that is a part of the poem too, right? You, you know, when the, um, there's that little, um, you know, painting trick where you see uh, a picture of, you know, whatever, like a picture, but then also it's a duck if you look at the dark space, right? Or, you know, a picture of the younger woman on one side, and it's a an older woman if you look at the other side of it, that the negative space, Is active space as well as the, you know, if you will, positive space. It's all a part of the thing, even though what we think we're doing is just putting those words on the page. So I think that, you know, one of the beauties of poems is um, one of the things that um, appeals to me about them tremendously um, is that if you are a thrifty person, there's not a scrap wasted, right? Not a scrap of space, not a syllable. Uh, nothing is wasted when you make a good poem, and so that's how I think about uh, about the white space.
0: You know, I've never, I, I've also never thought about this when it comes to poetry. But you are, in some ways, controlling the rhythm of breath, not just your own. Yes,
2: right. That's right. That's right. It's magical, <laughs> um, and that's what's that's what's hard about the the making of poems. Many things are hard, but that's one of the things that's hard. So when Maya Angelou started this process
0: of, of writing the poem, she knew that it had been decades since a poet had been asked to capture you know, the moment in a poem. Robert Frost had, had last done it for JFK.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what do you think that means in that all those years had passed and then we'd come to this other historic moment, and you are the writer, the poet, who is asked to um, capture and articulate this moment in history. What do you think that meant to take that on, I guess?
2: For her, clearly from the poem, we can see that she took it as her charge to try to really think about the entire country to write a poem that was very inclusive uh, in its vision of America, that that did a lot of naming uh, of uh, the people and the places that make up this gorgeously variegated country. Um, so uh, that, that mission, um, uh, and that mission as being a way to inaugurate a new era in American uh, presidential uh, electoral politics um, seemed to be something that she took up quite seriously. I think that also, and, and this is less to Angelo herself and more to uh, uh, President Clinton's selection of her, um, I think said something very beautiful and very important about, uh, again, um, a, a, a fully integrated and variegated America. President Clinton, famously an Arkansan, and that uh, a a white man, and that here embodied in Maya Angelou from Stamps, Arkansas, although she moved out on many, many stages after that San Francisco, New York City, the world um, that this black woman was also an Arkansan. In other words, that this place, Arkansas, this origin story was not about, you know, one white man, but rather about different kinds of people hailing from the same place, and uh, that they became a sort of a harmonious tableau uh, uh, that I think was emblematic for for something that 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 mattered um, uh, in the vision uh, that that inaugurated that presidency. Um, I think also uh, that he chose a poet who was as well known as a memoirist, and that in her memoir writing, she was known as a truth teller. Uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is certainly the work for which she is best known. And and I can't even, you know, imagine the millions and millions and millions of people who have read that book. I mean, I'm sure the publication and circulation statistics are astonishing. Um, And there are many aspects to that fantastic American memoir. But one of the important ones is this girl was violated. She was raped as a child. And that trauma rendered her mute. She refused to speak after her violation. And the book is about what it meant to come to voice after being silenced in your entire person. And I think that 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 message of the book is really the most important thing that people have taken away from it. What does it mean to come to voice after great pain, after great violation? And so, I think that by choosing, uh, you know, a, a great American poet uh, and a an American master, certainly, but also someone who was so well known for that book and a book that was so well known for that message was saying something very important about having many voices uh, uh, authorized, having many voices taken seriously, having many voices in the public square, about acknowledging that America is a place to be celebrated, but also a place of great pain and violation in its fundamental narratives, uh, beginning with uh, our Native population. And so um, I think To be able to tell a story of America that is about multivocality and about being able to name pain as well as triumph and move forward in a powerful way, that that is what her choice and her standing up there represented.
1: Come, rest here by my side, each of you a bordered country, delicate and strangely made, Proud, yet thrusting perpetually under siege, your armed struggles for profit have left collars of waste upon my shore, currents of debris upon my breast. Yet today I call you to my riverside, if you will study war no more. Come, clad in peace, and I will sing the songs the Creator gave to me When I and the tree and the rock were one. Before cynicism was a bloody seer across your brow. And when you yet knew, you still knew nothing. The river sang and sings on. There is a true yearning to respond to the singing river and the wise rock. So say the Asian, the Hispanic, the Jew, the African, the Native American, the Sioux, The Catholic, the Muslim, the French, the Greek, the Irish, the rabbi, the priest, the sheik, the gay, the straight, the preacher, the privileged, the homeless, the teacher, they all hear the speaking of the tree.
0: Earlier you said Mm -hmm. it, it was meaningful that she did a lot of naming. Is that the kind of naming that you meant?
2: Yes, and there's so much to say about that passage. Um, while one could never name all of the peoples uh, who make up uh, uh, the United States, um, certainly what she's trying to do with that catalog uh, of names the Asian, the Hispanic, the Jew, the African, the Native American, the Sioux, and so forth um, is say, all of this is America. All of these names occupy the same space and power in the poem. You could hear in her reading of it when you read out that catalog, when you say those names together, and, you know, you note that that's where she moves into, um, into rhymed couplets. Uh, uh, so um, uh, we go, you know, the Jew, the Sioux, the Greek, the Sheik, the preacher, the teacher. Um, and so the, and then she moves back into, in, into unrhymed, uh, into unrhymed verse. So I think that what you hear also with the, that series, those commas, is that she's gathering speed. She's wanting us by joining these lines with rhyme and by giving us that um, uh, fast moving litany to understand that all of these people and peoples share space in the poem, and are connected in the poem, and therefore share space in America and are connected in America. It's very, very artful what she did there. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening
0: to They Believed, what the words of America's visionaries and truth-tellers reveal about who we were then and who we are now.
1: Hello, Chicago!
0: So Barack Obama gets elected, and the rumors start to fly that some lucky poet is going to be chosen to write a poem for his inauguration day. And Elizabeth Alexander gets the call. And a month and two days before she has to show up in Washington ready to go, she starts
2: to write. And that day was December the 18th, which I always remember because it was my late grandmother's birthday. And I took it as a sign that I could actually do this thing. And um, the poem, you know, had to be written. I mean, we were entering into the holidays. The inaugural was the day that it was in January. Um, I spoke to my wonderful public poetry publishers at Grey Wolf Press who wanted to, you know, make a beautiful little book of it because we felt that it was important, you know, that this was a poem that belonged to people Uh, And that this was a poem that we wanted to live in the world in people's hands and not just in those few minutes. So we were talking about when would I need to get it done so that they could, you know, quickly zoom, 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 get the thing made. Uh, and also, of course, I wanted to get it done in good time. Um, uh, so, you know, we set whatever date in January we set beforehand for it to be done. And I just went very intently. My kids were young at the time. Uh, and uh, I remember, you know, my dear late husband just scooped, scooped them up in a way and took over every single household responsibility. And I just cloistered myself, perhaps pacing in the way that that uh, Maya Angelou did, uh, trying to listen for those words. And I remember thinking, tr- visualizing in my head, tr- trying to picture the whole country, naming the places, trying to think about what I knew and didn't know about people and places. Um, really, really also thinking about um President-elect at the time, Obama's campaign, and how much it was about, you know, not about him per se, but rather about the power that he could help um, awaken and support in others, and that it was a campaign that was was a very collective campaign. You know, famously, that campaign raised its zillions of dollars, uh, in large part, by lots of small donations. Um, So um, that sense that many people had a piece of this moment of change, and this moment of extraordinary history. So, you know, needless to say, it was it was very front and center for me that this was the dream uh, of my parents and grandparents, you know, who really didn't think that they would live to see the day that that the United States would elect an African American president, um, and that an African American family would be about to inhabit the White House. Um, so that was, you know, just so extraordinary. And, you know, the White House, the Capitol, so much of official Washington built by enslaved black people, um, that this was a way that uh, uh, uh you know history could be made visible and transformed it felt like um and so how to have that spirit somewhere in the poem uh was what i it, it took a a really quite total immersion which um in my life as a, a you know parent to young children and someone who worked and was a professor and everything being able to say Give me space was not something that it was easy to do, but it was called for, for this. Um, And I wrote so many drafts of the poem. Um, Somewhere I have uh, a manuscript box um, with all of the drafts of it. Uh, And I would say it's a manuscript box that's about six inches tall, that's filled with pieces of paper. Um, You know, drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts. Sometimes tweaking one word, sometimes adding or removing a comma, sometimes breaking the stanzas differently, sometimes starting the poem at a different place, sometimes naming the poem a different thing. Um, So much rigorous, intense editing. Because, you know, writing a poem for an occasion is, I think, many times harder than writing a poem as it just kind of comes to you. Um, The sense of responsibility also, and of writing a poem that people wouldn't first read in a a journal or a magazine or a book, but rather would hear. That was a very, very particular thing about writing this poem, about knowing that I had to write something that worked 100% as heard, and that most people who heard it would never read it. Um, I mean, you know, you hope lots of people read it, but the reality is, you know, whatever the audience was that day it would never be uh, approached with a, a reading audience so that was that was a hard thing that that demanded a certain kind of immersion too um was thinking about i'm making a song to be sung out loud as well as something that i hope will you know live for a long time on paper
0: you know, I, I read that when Maya Angelou heard that you'd been chosen, she said she seems much like Walt Whitman, she sings the American song. You knew that, right?
2: I sure did. Um, and uh, that was even more than a compliment, that assessment, that valuation from her um it's more than a compliment, you know, it just, um, made me feel, um, very, very, very validated and seen. Um, uh, you know, in, in a lot of, of, of my work, um, I am interested in history. I am interested in historical figures and voices, uh, you know, most in the U S context, um, whose stories perhaps have not been centered or have not been told. Um, that's one of the things I'm listening for in my work and and that's one of the things that actually I feel like my life as a scholar, um, being uh, in archives and being in historical documents and 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 texts um, it, it is a wonderful, wonderful source uh, for poetry. So I think that that's you know part of the way. Um, that, uh, I guess, you know, listening for the American song was something that she was, she, that she saw. I think also just in general, you know, there is, um, there's, there's not enough generosity modeled out there. You know, it, it, it's so much easier to pick, 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 or to downplay, uh, and, and what I really appreciate in her and what I appreciate in others who do this and how I, try to be myself is to be, as Gwendolyn Brooks would say, be an encourager. She put it with a capital E. Be an encourager of people. Encourage. Give people courage. Use your word to make people their best, not to take them down, you know? And so I felt that modeling that was was just a very, very beautiful thing that I that I really, really, really adhere to myself doesn't mean that sometimes you don't need to um, fight a fight. Um, but you know, using your public words to encourage is much more bountiful.
0: Now, oh, I love the idea of that as in, don't undermine this with some kind of faint praise. Maya Angelou exactly. was the opposite,
2: right? Exactly, exactly. And, um, and she called me, um, uh, she, um, uh, and again, I, I didn't know her, and I don't know how I was probably listed in the phone book, but I was living in Cambridge at the time. And so I wasn't even in the place where she didn't find me at an office. She found me at home. So I think that, I don't know who, she found someone we knew in common and got my home phone number. And at some point in in, in the days before, my phone rang, and there she was on the other end of the phone, um, the voice unmistakable. <laughs> and it was one of the most treasured conversations of my life. Uh, she called to wish me well she called to see how i was doing and feeling she called you know sometimes when people ask you how's the writing going um i feel like go away you know <laughs> i'll tell you when i got something to tell you don't ask me when i'm in my anxious state um and i don't remember how she phrased it but it was it was just very like hello sister i you know i know what you're trying to do uh and uh and and how are you um and i just talked and talked, and felt mothered, and auntied, and respected. And I asked her at one point, I said, um, well, what are you coming? Because I also didn't know. Well, so if you've been to a presidential inaugural and read a poem, do you get to come again? Did they invite you? How does it work? Um, and I uh, so she, she laughed. She thought that was very funny. And, uh, she said, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not coming. Uh, and she said, um, I want to get it exactly right. She said, I shall, I shall stay home and prepare a potage and open a beautiful bottle of, I do believe she said, Pouli Foussé. <laughs> and she said, and I will feast and I will drink, and I will rejoice. And it was just so, and she said, and I will be watching. And that gave me a picture to say someone, the person who just about matters the most, is cheering, is watching, is encouraging, is jubilant. Uh, and that she painted that for me in such fantastic, vivid language um, was uh, just the gift of gifts. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise, All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils. Begin. Was
0: this kind of an out-of-body experience, or do you remember what it was like to stand and read and declaim and look out at the audience?
2: I remember it absolutely precisely. Um, uh, I remember, so it always must be said, it was it was really cold <laughs> um i grew up in washington dc and it, w- it didn't get cold like that it was a very very unusually cold day so one uh basic concern i had was unfreezing my face to form the words so that they would not sound um blurred <laughs> because i mean it was it was that cold and we were staged A long time before the ceremony began, so we'd been outside for some time. I remember um, I I sat with my father, uh, who has devoted so much of his life and work to the struggle for civil rights and uh, and and equal treatment for people in the workplace, and he had on uh, an original button for the March on Washington that said jobs, peace, and freedom. And so he was my anchor sitting next to me, but also I couldn't look at him because I was afraid that if I looked at him we would catch eyes and I would have a moment and I would not be able to, you know, really do my job. It's like something had to be executed. I had to do my job, but having him there was, was extraordinary ballast. And when I came to the stage, um, and and I remember um, uh, uh, that I, I was introduced as an American poet and I just loved that so much um, because I really did feel and do feel that um, whoever is asked to write a poem for that occasion is writing on behalf of American poetry. And so when I got up to that stage, I felt quite literally because I have a kind of um uh, a belief that, you know, ancestors really are with us. So I felt that there were, it was a crowded stage with American poets past and present, uh, who sang a clear voiced song, were there with me. And certainly, Walt Whitman, as I looked out uh, onto that mall, which was uh, at one point, uh, you know, d- uh, converted into a a Civil War uh, hospital for people who had been hurt in battle, and Walt Whitman on that mall tended to uh, people who were injured and dying tended to them medically, but also reportedly tended to them with words and poems that he read to them. So I thought about that. I thought about as I looked out the mall as a site of so much great American Protest, some of which I had participated in myself. You know, um, uh, m- marches happen on that mall. And I think the tradition of protest is so much a part of who we are as a, a country. Um, my grandmother, who I mentioned earlier, Winona Bon Logan, such an inspiration to me in my life, um, I felt that she was with me because she had a great um, practicality about just do what you're supposed to do. Don't make it fancy. <laughs> just get up there and do it. Don't be afraid. You can't be afraid. You have a job to do. This is not about you and your little feelings. This is about you've been called to an occasion. You have a job to do. And it's a job that is on behalf of other people. And so stand tall and lift your chin and do your job, you know? So she was very much there as well. And I did take a moment before I read the poem, and I think that this was because I didn't want to have an out-of-body experience, to really take in a breath and look out and to see this extraordinary sight of people further than the eye could see. Further than the eye could see. Different kinds of people together to mark this moment. Uh, and i'm i'm- th- thank you for asking me because um I felt like remember what you see and tell people what you see because this is real and meaningful. You said
0: earlier that you you rethought the title a few times, you changed it, and then so how did you settle on that?
2: Hmm. I, I wish I could remember exactly because, you know, the process It not always clear like that. Um, so I, I don't really know. I mean, one, one of the things that, that I, I do often is that sometimes a title is to be found within the poem. So sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll pluck out something and see, is, is this it? Is this it? it? You know, almost in a rotating way. Taking out the phrases to see, uh, what, what it is. Um, I know that settling on the idea of the praise song, uh, a, a West African form, uh, that I think, you know, probably part of what I was saying with that is that, um, what's beautiful about, um, uh, American creativity is that it contains so many other traditions of creativity in it. So, you know, West African expressive culture uh, then uh, transforms into African American expressive culture that is... At the center of what American culture is, right, um, and uh, and so forth and so on. Look at all of the Spanish words that are in the English language. Look at you know we, we could we could we could go on um, to talk about um, the way that American culture is made. And so I think that the praise song was not about a person because again I found uh, Barack Obama's self-effacingness. I've always found it uh, to be very powerful. Uh, that he's, he's the vessel, he's the messenger, he's the catalyst, he's doing the job. But as he would often say, it's not about me. It's not about this perch. It's about us, and it's about what we are empowered to do together. So to think about the praise song being not about a person, but about the day, which is to say the moment in history, the turn in history, the occasion, and that that's an occasion that's made by the millions. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain." That many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here. Who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, Picked the cotton and the lettuce, Built brick by brick the glittering edifices They would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle. Praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign. The figuring it out at kitchen tables.
0: The festivities concluded. President Obama spent his first day in the Oval Office, and Elizabeth Alexander and her family went home.
2: When my family and I came back from Washington, Uh, Probably two days after the inaugural, when all had settled down and the children had to go back to school, we walked into the apartment and in the hallway was the most magnificent bouquet of flowers arrangement that I have ever received in all my days. And it was from her. Wow. That was a juicy story. (laughs) I thought that was a good one. It's (laughs) Wonderful. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, Anything can be made. Any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp. Praise song for walking forward in that light.
0: You've been listening to They Believed. What the words of America's firebrands, truth-tellers, and visionaries reveal about who we are then and now. This series is produced by Marquita Fornoff and Kelly Gordon. Special thanks to Elizabeth Alexander. You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks for
1: listening.